Hello, my name is Pastor Brian Taylor of Forest Avenue Baptist Church here in Sherman, Texas. And you're listening to our sermon series in the book of Philippians. We're so thankful that you're listening. And also, we would like to invite you to one of our services if you're here in Sherman or Grayson County area. Our address is 106 West Forest Avenue. And our number is 903-892-3506. You can email the church at church at fabcsherman.com. Thank you so much and have a great day. As we continue in our study in the book of Philippians, uh, those of you who here last week, you got to hear the story of Acts chapter 16 and how the Philippian church was started. And um, one of the things you're going to notice about the book of Philippians really compared to a lot of other books like Corinthians or Galatians um, and even Ephesians, is that Paul doesn't seem to have to rebuke them as much as he's having to get on to the Corinthians or to the Galatians, but that there is at least a sense of joy and of love and of um, encouragement uh, in a positive way in the Apostle Paul writing to the Philippians. And one of the reasons for that is because of, I think, of how the Philippian church was started, not only how it started, but then how it progressed. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that church this morning, but let's read uh, the first 11 verses together. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with the knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruits of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. As Paul pins his letter, he is remembering his time in Philippi. Not just remembering his time, but he's also remembering the gifts that they have sent him. Not only have they sent him financial gifts, but they've also sent people to aid him in the spread of the gospel. You know, I was talking to a, a lady that went on her first mission trip, an old friend of mine that went on her first mission trip to Africa this week. And one of the things she told me was that she was talking to a, a, the missionary that she went to serve under, and there seemed to be some kind of discrepancy on whether or not people should send money or people should go. The, the, in the scriptures, let me tell you that we have both and. Churches would send money to the Apostle Paul, send financial help to aid him in his spread of the gospel. 
But you know what they would also do? They would send people, Epaphroditus, we're going to learn, is one of those people, to aid Paul in the spread of the gospel. Folks, we don't get to, nor do we have to, choose which one we will do. We can do both. We can help the missionary and the minister plant churches across the globe or across the street, and we can go and be a part of it. And in the scriptures, you will see both. And for churches like Philippi, you see both. And you see they send money, they help, they also go. Because see, it's not enough just to give our money to Lottie Moon. It's not enough just to uh, support missions. But part of the relationship that we have with other churches across the globe, part of the brotherhood and the sisterhood that we have in Christ means that sometimes we show up and say, hey, me and you, we are one in Christ Jesus. And so Paul is joying in the fact, I don't know, is that a verb, joying? He rejoices in the fact that these, this church has ministered to him through financial gifts, but they've also ministered to him in sending people. As he begins this letter, his mind returns to those first days in Philippi. His memories return to him about each of those members that were lost and then were born again. He thinks about Lydia. He thinks about the slave girl. He thinks about the Philippian jailer and all the members of that Philippian jailer's household. He thinks about the prisoners that were in the jail cell that were saved when him and Paul and, and him and Silas, Paul and Silas, were singing in the jail cell that night and how those jailers and those prisoners didn't run and escape, but they stayed and they listened to the songs and, the, and even the proclamation of the gospel. You see, as Christians, we believe that something more must happen to the human soul, that it's supposed to be born again. Not just believing in a set of facts, but I was reading a quote this week. It's so a neat quote. It said that Michelangelo can paint on the Sistine Chapel but flesh is still flesh. Beethoven can write some of the greatest music, but flesh is still flesh. Einstein can write E equals MC squared. He can split the atom, but flesh still produces flesh. Marvel not, Jesus said, you must be born again. You see, Paul is remembering how God took these people that were in darkness and he brought them into the spiritual light. He brought them into Christ. You see, we can do some of the most beautiful things. We can even build a beautiful church right here in the middle church, what we're rest restoring. But at the end of the day, flesh still produces flesh. We must strive to be born again. No one enters the kingdom of God without being born of the Spirit. You know, and I know a lot of Americans, they have a sense that there is a God. They believe in their minds, that there is a God. But they have never been born again. They've never surrendered all of their life to Jesus Christ. You see, they've still got strongholds in their life, and they've said, you know what, Jesus, you're not going to tell me, your word's not going to tell me what I have to do about that part of my life. I'm going to do what I want to on that part. But when a man is born again, not of flesh, but of the Spirit, he yields himself to Christ in surrender and in repentance, and he is changed. He goes from spiritual death to spiritual life. Paul remembers that. 
and he rejoices. Number two, he remembers that they pray for him as well as he prays for them. One of the greatest privileges we have in the church is our access to God through Christ in prayer. And we can use that for each other. What a shame that we often do not utilize the greatest gift we have outside of our salvation, the gift of prayer. I just got through reading a book about a young believer in Pakistan. She was a Muslim. She was a jihad terrorist. She was days away from putting on a vest that was an ex- had explosives on it. And she was about to walk into a group of probably Christians, because in Pakistan they do have a minority of Christians that have, uh, and oftentimes the churches or the pastors are targeted for, it's not just American soldiers. Sometimes it's even other national Christians they target. And so she was days away from doing that. She had raised her hand in a cell group. Her family was a part of a terrorist cell group. And she had raised her hand to put on the vest. She was dedicated. She was going to give her life for Allah. And she began to take, through a friend of hers she met, she began to analyze her faith She began to research the Quran, and she began to pray, asking the one true God to show himself to her. She met Jesus Christ, and in a period of a couple of weeks, she gave her life to the Lord Jesus, and she prayed for her mother in in those weeks, even though her mother had already beat her almost to death because of her confessing she was a follower of Jesus Christ, she prayed for her mother's uh, heart problem. And what happened on the street when her mother fainted and fell down in the street, she prayed and her mother got up and walked away. And later on her mother confessed, Jesus Christ healed me. What a comfort we can find at the feet of Jesus. What a privilege we have to carry everything to God in prayer. Philippians 1.4, Paul models here what he says, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my, every, making my prayer with joy. He does so with joy. You are not called to bear prayer as a duty that is burdensome and a pain. You are called to take the greatest gift outside of your salvation and pray for one another and pray for yourself and pray and worship to Jesus. You see, prayer was meant to be something done in joy. And many Christians, we've got it backwards. We think that prayer is this duty and this burden and that uh, if we don't pray, then God's going to strike us down with some kind of big stick or he's going to be mad at us. Folks, prayer is a gift from God. We should pray with joy, Paul says. Praying with joy. We should consider it an honor, a gift, such a glorious thing that God hears His children and answers. Who hears the prayer of the Muslim? Muhammad's dead. Allah in in Islam is a God up there who basically has a set of scales and he weighs your good deeds and your bad deeds 
and at the end they're not too sure which one's going to weigh the most. It's not a loving God. We pray to a God who has given us His only begotten Son. We pray with joy. As Paul walked out of the town of Philippi, he left very excited, very confident in his church that he was leaving behind. Even from the beginning, he quick, it was quickly becoming a church that was very generous and desired to help Paul plant more churches. In fact, they sent money to Thessalonica where Paul went to help him. The church is something that we need to always remember. This is something that's always true. Churches plant churches. Did you know that? You may say, well, we give to the SBTC or the BGCT, and we give money so that these church planters can plant churches. And that is true. In that way, churches plant churches. But the Philippian church did more than that. They went. They sent people to Thessalonica. They sent people to Ephesus. They sent people to Rome to minister and to spread the gospel with Paul. Epaphroditus is the one that I will point to to say that they physically partnered with Paul in the spread of the gospel. That is why I think it's so good that Jeremy and Ben and Randy and Tim went to Mexico this year and helped build a church among the Mexican believers. Because it is not enough for us just to write a check we must go and spread the gospel in person. You know, we are called, every single one of us, we may not be called to live overseas, but we are called, if we are able, to go. And we are called, if we are able, to give. We are called, if we are able, to pray. And each one of us should be able to pray with joy. Should we not? And even those of us that make very little money, the poorest among us, we are not exempt from giving our little bit. What did Jesus say of the widow who put in the two pennies? He said, she has given all she has. My goodness. He saw her gift as one of the greatest gifts ever given because she gave all she had. Her little tiny bit. In his eyes was much more than the rich man. We partner in the gospel. The word Paul uses in the Greek for participation is the word koinonia. It's, uh, the word koinonia sometimes means fellowship or common. It is what we have together. Sometimes we get the word fellowship and we get it all wrong. We think it's about a church potluck or we think it's about friendly people and good coffee and a nice environment positive and uplifting words. But don't you understand that koinonia means shared responsibility. Shared responsibility. In other words, church hopping is not being a part of shared responsibility. If you're coming for the entertainment and you feel encouraged at the end, that is great. But I encourage you to figure out what fellowship really means. Fellowship means shared suffering, shared responsibility, common goals, common passion, common 
worship. Same God, same Father, same Jesus, same Gospel, same good news. We are on the same journey. Salvation, because each of us, I'm praying, that each of us in this room, if not today, very soon, would be born again, if you're not, if you're not already, and that we could be on the same journey to be the same heaven, the same God, the same faith, the same baptism, right? We are fellowshipping. We have a shared responsibility in the spread of the gospel. You see, the relationship, this is the title of my message this morning. I'm just now getting to it. The relationship between the minister and the church is they have a shared responsibility. They have a shared worship. They love each other. They should. Not all churches are that way. They should have a shared love for one another, a shared passion for Jesus, a shared responsibility. They partner with each other in the gospel. You see, fellowships, um, I love um, Tolkien. Do you read, do you ever, anybody read the Fellowship of the Rings? Right, the Lord of the Rings, right? Anybody read that, that trilogy? I like sci-fi when I was a kid. I really loved to read them. And even the older I get, I think I was in my 20s when I finally read Tolkien's trilogy. And you know, you ever heard of the fellowship of the ring? The partnership of those nine or whoever, however many there were, Frodo and Bilbo and all those guys, and they're all on this journey together to uh, cast that ring into Mordor and destroy it, right? I know that's kind of a weird analogy, but we, we're on a shared journey. We have the gospel together. We have a shared partnership. Listen, to all the people Paul listed that were partnering with him. I'm going to go through it. This is You can find these in different places, but even throughout the book of Philippians. Let us begin with the obvious truth that since Paul has addressed this letter to the saints in Philippi with the overseers and deacons, that he is actually including the whole church that has partnered with him in the spread of the gospel. Number one, the whole church. The overseers and the deacons, number two. Number three, he has named Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was a messenger sent from Philippi, from the Philippian church, to Paul. He was one of them. He was a member of their church. He was someone they trusted, someone they loved, someone they entrusted with money to give to Paul. Paul calls him a brother. Paul calls Epaphroditus a co-worker. He calls him a fellow soldier. Now look at all of those phrases. You could preach a sermon just off of those three words. Brother, Co-worker, fellow soldier. That's what Epaphroditus was. What a powerful description of someone who is all in for the partnership of the gospel. Brother, co-worker, fellow soldier. And there are some of you in this room that I think about work, and I think we have bled together over there in that other building, right? Tearing stuff up. A lot of blood. <laughs> Nails, Tim pulled a nail out of my foot one day. I'm telling you what we have, we have shared in our suffering over there. And when it's all said and done, those who share and have the brotherhood and the co-working on that building are going to have a, a little bit more joy than those that hadn't done much, right? Why? Because we're on this journey together and it means something to us. And when you are a soldier... Some of you in this room have been soldiers. And you know what it means to have your brothers six, right? There is a shared responsibility and you care about one another. 
when it comes to the work of the church and what must be done here, we are in a partnership. Paul mentions Epaphroditus, brother, co-worker, fellow soldier. But he doesn't stop there. He, 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 he doesn't only mention the men who worked with him, but he also mentions the women ladies. He mentions two ladies later on in Philippians, Judea and Syntech. He says they labored side by side with him in the work of the gospel. He also mentions Clement of Rome. He says Clement was a fellow worker. As we consider what it means for a church to partner with missionaries and church planners and even their own pastors, these people are fantastic examples of what it means to have a relationship with missionaries and ministers of the gospel. We cannot do it without you. You understand? We need you. The layman, the average layman, is just as important as the pastor who stands in the pulpit preaching the gospel every Sunday. You are so important to the spread of the gospel. How does the church grow without each born-again believer fellowshipping, shared responsibility, partnering for the spread of the gospel? We're in it together, folks, to the very end. Next, Paul says that what Christ started, he will complete. Man, isn't that a great promise? That what Jesus started, he will finish. There are a few verses that are famous in Philippians, and this is one of them. And a lot of people quote this verse. It's a terrific promise that God gives each believer who have been born again, that what Jesus started in you, he will finish it. Have you ever been discouraged? Have you ever been worn out, and maybe burned out, and down on yourself, and just feel like I'm never going to conquer my inner demons and my, my own sins and struggles. Can I tell you something? Here is a promise that you can bank on. What Jesus has started in you, born again believer, he will finish it. He is the one who builds his church. It's not about keeping the Ten Commandments. It's about loving Jesus more and more and more and about allowing him to shape your life and opening and yielding yourself up to Him and saying, Lord, take Your Word, take my prayers, take Your Holy Spirit, and transform me from the inside out. Jesus, finish what You started in me. I don't want to be the same way the rest of my life. I want Jesus to shape me. I want the Holy Spirit to shape me into the image of Jesus. We cannot ever hope to mature in Christ on our own. We must be a part of a fellowship of believers. We must share the workload. And we must partner or be partakers of God's grace as well. This is the next thing Paul says. He says, we are all partakers of God's grace. Um, you can see that in verse um, 7. For you are all partakers with me of grace. Um, Paul uses the word grace even in the greeting. Did you notice that in verse 2? Instead of using the traditional Greek greeting, he substitutes greetings for grace. He says, this thing was started in grace. You were born again by grace, and God's going to complete you at the very end in, in Christ Jesus, and it'll all be because we are partakers of grace. Grace is the origin of our salvation, Ephesians 2.8. 
Grace is the source of our spiritual growth. 1 Corinthians 15.10 Grace is the basis of our Christian service. Ephesians 3, 7 and 8. Grace is the everlasting source of our strength. 2 Corinthians 12.9 We have grace in common. Which means we got to extend grace to each other, church. We are partakers of God's grace. Next, Paul says the affection he holds, the shepherd holds in his heart for the sheep. Now, let me specify this. First of all, we know there's one shepherd, Jesus. But Jesus has put in place under shepherds, people that he has called to pastor his church, right? And there's many of us all across Grayson County this morning, and there's some of you in this room who used to be pastors, you used to be under shepherds. So he says that these folks should hold their congregations in their heart. He says, through his modeling, he says, I have you in my heart. You know, a pastor that doesn't have an affection or a love for his people should not be in the ministry. Now, I know that love can grow cold. It can. But when it does, we must seek and hit our knees and ask Jesus, Jesus, change my heart. You know, the people that say things like, and I've maybe caught myself wanting to say it a couple times too, ministry would be great if it wasn't for people. Folks, ministry is people. You're in the wrong place if you don't love people. The second commandment Jesus said, what? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and what? Love your neighbor as yourself. People is what it's all about. Paul said, I have you in my heart. I hold you in my heart. And it is with joy that he prays for them. It is with joy that he remembers them. Paul says that these Philippians are in his heart. And I think people miss out on joy because they focus on how people get on their nerves instead of how their immediate family or church family, as implied here, can bring them joy. You know, a lot of times that's our problem. We are always focused on how people get on our nerves. You ever been there? Man, I don't want to go to Walmart, right? Ooh, some of them people get on my nerves. I don't want to go to church this morning. They're going to ask me where I've been, and that gets on my nerves. I don't, I don't want to go to work. All those people I work with get on my nerves. You ever been there? Folks, the secret to joy and to love is to recognize that God has given those people that get on your nerves in your life to actually... I pray this could happen. Be a blessing and a joy to you. Teachers, did you hear that? About your students? They get on your nerves. Some of them do. You know they do. You don't want to admit it in church and public. Some of them kids get on your nerves. But can I tell you something? God wants to use those people. It, it is only, I think it's amazing how family brings out the best and the worst in us. Do you ever notice that? 
It is in family where we can have the greatest hurt and also the greatest joy. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever felt like you had a, a great hurt happen in your, in your immediate family? It is through people that we can be hurt the most and it is through often people that we can experience the most joy and the most satisfaction in life. God wants to use people to bring us joy, but we must not be focused on getting our nerves, hitting our nerves, but we've got to be focused on being a part of, a, of the family of God. In marriage, we can find the greatest joys and, yes, time, and sometimes the greatest hurt. Perhaps being a part of a family of God is not that different. We must strive to hold one another in our hearts, being first with the responsibility of the pastor to his flock and also down to every congregation member that we hold each other in our heart. That's the first thing. Secondly, Paul says that I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Now, if you are a literal translation person, you're going to love this next part. Paul says what he says in the literal Greek is that I crave or long after you in the bowels of Jesus Christ. It's literal. In Jewish days, the way someone showed affection was saying, I long after you from my bowels. Anybody say that to their wife on the wedding day, looked into her eyes and vowed, said, honey, I'm going to love you with my bowels. He said, oh, pastor, you've gone too far. That's the literal translation. We figure that a church that was, that this, this word from the bowels is a little bit too much, pastor, but I can hear a lot of you saying some pretty immature junior high style jokes right now. But now you can greet each other in church and say, brother, I love you from my bowels. Maybe it doesn't translate well, I understand, but it is a way every culture has something funny that they say when it comes to love. But basically, we share together a partnership even in suffering. You know that, that Philippian church had been through some storms together. Some of them had been beaten. Some of them had been put in jail together. Quite literally, it is not impossible to believe that they had undergone some of the same persecution that Paul had went through from those very magistrates. We figure that a church that was born into persecution couldn't actually escape it so quickly. And folks, here is something we can, as a side note, Satan doesn't let go of his kingdom easily or willingly. It must be ripped from his grasp. Even slowly sometimes it takes as God's people take God's spirit into God's, uh, with God's word into the dark corners of every city. We are called to be Christians that suffer together for Jesus. Uh, on the other night, uh, y'all saw the news of church right down the street. A guy fell asleep at the wheel and he jumped a thing and he ran into their building. And I, I sent a little text to that guy telling him I, we were praying for him and that I was sorry for his, you know, the trials and the storms we go through. But it's another thing altogether when you are being personally or even Christianity is being personally attacked by the world. 
We are not immune to that. And we may get more of that before the, the end comes. I'm pretty sure we should and would. We have an enemy. He's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Paul has called us to be sharers in his suffering. Verse 7. Lastly, I want to look at the pastoral prayer of what Paul prays for his people and then make conclusion. As we consider the relationship between the minister and his church, we see that they are partners in the gospel, that they are partakers all of the same grace, they have the same common fellowship, they are sharers in suffering, and they have a great affection for one another. But lastly, I want us to end at the substance of Paul's prayer. What does he actually pray? for the Philippians, verses 9 through 11. Listen to what he prays. Verse 9. Um, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus to the glory and praise of God. He prays that their love might abound. Love of what? Well, it's obvious from the context that it is their love of Jesus that Paul is speaking about. He says he wants their love to abound with knowledge and discernment. He wants them to know Jesus rightly. He wants them to be able to discern what is good. He wants them to be able to discern the voice of God, what is right, and what should be priority in their lives. Anybody ever get their priorities out of whack? Am I the only one? Brothers and sisters, we must abound in our love for Jesus so that we can be able to discern what's good and what's best. We must abound in our love for Jesus so that we can be filled with the fruits of righteousness and spread the gospel in an age of darkness like we live in. We must abound in the love of Jesus so that we may be able to see the difference between what is wrong and what is right when culture is telling us everything that is a lot of times wrong and against the Scripture. The only way that we can discern what is pure and what is blameless and what is righteous, and especially in a wicked generation that we live in, the only way we can is to figure out how to love Jesus more and more and more and more. You see, as we fall in love with Jesus, our eyes are opened. Uh, Christians get it wrong all the time. We think that if we, we obey the Ten Commandments, that if we go to church, that if we cross off our checked boxes, you know, and say, I did this, I did this, I did this, then I'm going to know what to do when a trial comes my way. But I am telling you, it is only people that have a love relationship with Jesus that get the mind of Christ and the discernment of the Holy Spirit to light their path. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I will hide his words in my heart that I may not sin against me. Why didn't that work for the Pharisees and Sadducees? They knew the scripture front and backward. Why didn't they see that it was Jesus standing in front of them? Because they did not truly love God. They loved power and their influence. Brothers and sisters, it is a love for God that opens our eyes and gives us spiritual discernment. 
when we love God more and more and more and we abound in His love, all kinds of things become clear to us in this world. We get discernment. We figure out the right path to take. It is our love for God that opens our eyes. Number three, this is what Paul was praying for these people. God, grow them up in Christ's love. Let them love you more. Let them mold. Let that your love mold them into the image of Christ. Let them love Jesus and bear fruit in their lives. Lastly, their lives of love lived in you will result in what? Praise and glory of God. When you love Jesus, other people see it and praise God. May people worship your God when they see how much you've been changed by His love. As we conclude this morning, maybe you've never really thought about the relationship between the pastor and the church. Maybe you don't realize that I have prayed for you and that I do have a great affection for each of you. I'm just a man, but I strive and I long to know you, pray for you, and to minister to you. I don't do so perfectly. There are things that I miss, mistakes that I make. But I have it in my heart, a great affection for each of you. And I want to love you more and more. Maybe you don't understand or realize that the gospel teaches us that the pastor must love and pray for his people. And so so too, those people must partner with him in the spread of the gospel. Maybe you have been reminded that although God has started with you, that He is not finished with you. He still wants to grow you in His love, becoming mature in Christ. Maybe you never thought about what it means to share in the missionary suffering and be willing to suffer alongside those who work so diligently to spread the gospel. Maybe this is the first time you heard about the substance of Paul's prayer, of how he prayed that our faith and our love for Jesus must abound more and more and more so that we can produce the fruits of righteousness in our lives. Sometimes the problem is we try so hard instead of finding a place of prayer and a place of love to meet with Jesus. Loving Jesus is so important. Young people, listen to me. If you don't hear anything else I say, listen to me this morning. Loving Jesus is the most important thing you'll ever do in your life. It'll shape every decision you make. You fall in love with Him at a young age. He will do things in your life you never can even imagine. Adults, 90 plus. Loving Jesus is so important. But some of us are real close to spending eternity with Him. And He is the one that we are going to stand in front of one day and He will say one of two things. He will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Or He will say, well done, my good, faithful servant. I told a guy this week, I said, The scripture says that God so loved the world, right? That he gave his only begotten son that who shall, what? Believes in him. 
shall have everlasting life. And he is not willing what? That any should perish. God loves you. Do you love God? That's the question. I know that I could love him more. And I don't think there's one person in this room that would say this morning, you know, I love God enough, Pastor, I'm just fine. I think what God and the Holy Spirit would want to do in us this morning through His Son Jesus is to look into each one of our eyes and say, I want to increase your love for me. Why don't you make me a priority today? With every heart, head bowed, every eye closed, this morning I want you to ask yourself about your love relationship with Jesus. Do you know He loves you? The only way you're going to be able to see a pathway through this life to discern good and evil, to have fruit in your life, and to minister to the people around you, your family, your co-workers, everyone, your neighbor. The only way you're going to be able to figure all that out is if you increase your love for Jesus. Can you ask yourself this morning, God, I need you to increase my love for Jesus. Help me.